Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Tonight is the third class or the third chapter of the Dhammapada uh, called the Chitta Vaga. Chitta means mind. Uh, Vaga has, like every Pali Sanskrit word, it has different meanings. So in this context, Vaga can really, uh, best translation is about. It's, a, it's, a, it's about the mind. But it's, it's not in a, in a surface way. You'll see that this little chapter is... Um, teaches to the essence of the Buddha's Dhamma and the essence of the human mind. Uh, the, the, uh, the subtitle for the Chittavaga is a well-restrained mind, and so this speaks to the essence of the Buddha's Dhamma. There is no, uh, and can be, no practical Dhamma uh, in, uh, in, at, at past events, obviously, or future events. The only effective Dhamma, the only effective human experience cannot be had in the past or in the future, can only be happened right here as human life occurs. Any other application of the mind is an obvious distraction because a human being can't be anywhere else except right here and right now. And this is what the Buddha was talking about. So this, this type of, of a well-restrained mind framed by the Eightfold Path avoids the common intellectual um, reaction to each and every thought of constantly grasping after ever more romantic ideas or ever more magical uh, and mystical applications of uh, this utterly simple dhamma, characterized by the recognition of my mind is out of control, I'm grasping after things that have nothing to do with the dhamma, let me bring it back into, unite my mind and my body through jhana meditation, through that simple breath, and then I can actually see what's occurring in my own life, a well-restrained mind. So again, without this understanding, um, the conceptual understanding first, of the necessity of wise restraint, which is, which is contrary to what every, just about every human being thinks about life and even so-called spiritual practice. There's always more to gain, more knowledge to understand. Uh, the, the, next, uh, the next great teacher, the next great technique you found the next great teacher and you found the next great technique. It's in the Dhamma. It's in the refuge that we take every time we come to class. And it's nowhere else to be found. The Chitta Vaga, a well-restrained mind. The Buddha's words. The mind, fickle. I'm sorry. The mind, fickle, unsteady, difficult to restrain. Even so, the wise disciple straightens the mind like a skillful Fletcher straightens an arrow. So the, the metaphor is important, and not to belabor it, but an, an, an arrow that is um, not perfectly straight is completely useless. In other words, an arrow that's not uh, pure to its own form, a straight arrow, is a useless tool. A mind that is not true to its own form is a useless tool. It will only bring pain and suffering. A mind ruled by Mara, Mara, in the, the the Buddhist teachings, Mara is always metaphor for the troubled quality of mind that results from ignorance of Four Noble Truths. To simply put, Mara is metaphor for the results of ignorance of Four Noble Truths. A mind ruled by Mara is agitated, like a fish out of water, 
gasping and flopping here and there. This mind is difficult to restrain, ever-changing, always clinging to objects of desire. The highest knowledge is restraint. A restrained mind dwells in peace, the culmination of the Buddha's Dhamma. A grasping mind is subtle, hard to recognize. How many, how many of us come to even just a general meditation practice with the, uh, the impetus being the monkey mind? I just, my mind, I can't control my mind. I have to find a way to control my mind. It's subtle. It's hard to recognize, isn't it, like that? We wonder, why can't I control my mind? It's mine, it's mine after all, isn't it? And yet we can't. Why? Because our minds are conditioned towards constantly grasping after ever new, ever romantic, the next great thing, the next great idea, the next great, great technique. And so that mind becomes hard to recognize because it's always grasping after something else. The wise restrain the mind. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, David. So in regards to the aggregates, does that mean you're aggregates are always shifting and changing to accommodate what you want to form as yourself. Yes. And and so thank you, David. So they they the the five aggregates are conceptually they're 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 fixed, but they're malleable to the situation. And it means that sometimes I might be focused on on the form, what this is happening to my form or the or the fabrication might be related to the form. I gotta, I gotta get the six foot four so I can play center field for the Yankees, as an example. It didn't quite happen in my life, but any time we 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 have to embellish what's occurring in this moment, I've lost my mind again. Meaning grasping after more, more knowledge, more experience, more physical height, a. Um, less conflict in my mind, yet not knowing how to develop a, a conflict-free mind, all of these things are a distraction. So even within a so-called spiritual practice, if my mind remains conflicted, I'm always going to be looking for either an addition to this particular practice or another practice. I'll never take it to its culmination. So within the Dhamma, if we're doing that, there's no opportunity for this at this level of a well-restrained mind. Thanks, David. Dwelling in distraction, the mind disjointed from the body wanders aimlessly. When subdued, the mind is freed from the bonds of marrow. And again, that, that idea of, of subduing our own mind is antithetical to almost everything we're taught about how to live our life. Always grasping after more, never leaving the table empty. Life is a banquet, you know, never leave hungry. Well, the, the, the person who has developed the Dhamma knows that life is a banquet Leave some for other people. If I, need, if I need to clear the table out, I'm going to be overburdened by all the junk I just attach myself to. Or I can take a couple of bites, give myself nourishment, meaning a couple of bites of reality, and get on with my life. Leave the table, leave the, the, the distraction of that big, big banquet table for someone else. I don't want it. I want a calm and peaceful mind. That's the kind of restraint we're talking about. When subdued, the mind is freed from the bonds of marrow. Wisdom never develop, is, is never developed in a mind that is ignorant of the heartwood, listless, not established in jhana. The heartwood always refers to the Eightfold Path. 
Where there is desire, there is fear. You remember that from the Loka Sutta, where the Buddha, upon his awakening, looked out on the world and said, "The world is a is a flame, a flame with what? A flame with 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 a flame with passion. Where there is desire, there is fear. It's a declarative statement, isn't it? Whenever I am desiring, whenever I'm craving after something, there's always a fear. What is that fear? Sometimes it's very subtle; we don't recognize it. But the fear is always, I'm not going to get what I've I'll let my mind on what I've decided I need in this moment to be more of me. To be the, the me that I can present to the world. There is no fear of an, there is no fear of an awakened one free of greed, aversion, free of grasping and losing, uh, free of gaining and losing. The wise understand the impermanence of form while fortifying the mind to abandon marrow. Let me read that without the metaphor. The wise understand the impermanence of form while fortifying the mind to abandon ignorance. Establishing right view, Mara conquered, ignorance abandoned, now free of worldly entanglements. Free of worldly entanglements allows us to practice wise restraint. In no time, this body is dust, mindless, lifeless, a useless stump, a reminder that we better get it done. We only get this one lifetime to do it. An unrestrained mind brings greater harm than any enemy or hater. Think about that. That's the, that is an absolute true statement uttered by an awakened human being 2,600 years ago that was true then, and it has been true every day since, and is certainly relevant today. Think about the, the all the difficulties in the world can directly be trace to minds that are unrestrained, full of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. An unrestrained mind brings greater harm than any enemy or hater. No one and no thing brings greater benefit than a mind well restrained. That's the end of this chapter. And of course, the Buddha doesn't leave us hanging. He never does. How do we restrain the mind? Through the Eightfold Path. Um, so let's go online. I think that's uh, we went the other way too far. Um, Jane, how are you tonight? I'm fine, John. Um, thank you for the teachings. I have nothing to add tonight except I'm glad I'm here. So am I. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Cliff, how are you tonight? Excellent. Could be better. Great to I'll, see you. I'll I'll hold my questions for when they arise. That's all right. It, it certainly is. Glad you're here. Hello, Meg. Good to see you. Hi there, John. Nice to be here. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess the, the place where I always get a little bit hung up is um, around planning and being prepared mm -hmm. for what lies ahead or what comes. And, um, and then, and, or, I guess I should say, or just taking what comes because one, there's a certain amount of responsibility, right? Yeah. To the environment that you're in and the people that you're with. Right. Yeah. And just, um, taking an attitude of, well, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it is kind of a, well, I'll just turn cop you know, throw caution to the wind and, you know, if it comes yeah. back and 
something I realized early on in my 20s is I noticed that a lot of things, a lot of experiences I was having was the reaction to things that were happening to me rather than being proactive, right? And making good choices. And uh, obviously I didn't know, I didn't understand that. Um, That's why I got myself in that situation, but it's something that I learned. And so, um, so I always get a little bit confused with Mm. this kind of message because it, it seems to say, just be present with life and as life occurs. And yet, when I, if I do that, then, well, then I have to take what comes, you know. Yeah. And it may not be something that is um, uh, the best um, direction to go, you know. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. And, and, and Meg, you're, you're describing your own engagement with the Dhamma in a very practical way. You're coming up against a key issue. And that issue is, does the Buddha teach, or does the Dhamma teach us that we should be so disjointed from our life that it that we're just indifferent to everything that occurs? And it really is just the opposite. We are mindfully present for each and every moment of our life, but in a completely impersonal way. And a good example would be, I know the mortgage is due next week, so a practical thing for me to do this moment is to write the check and put it in the mail. But I don't have to be... I don't have to have me involved in it. I don't have to, to get caught up in the mind game of whatever it might be, of, oh, I, don't, I hate paying high interest rates or uh, whatever that might be, or let me, let me um, con- continue to contribute to my great wealth by building this, all of these things, rather than just in this moment, I'm writing a check. That's all it is. And, and in that moment, then that simple mundane act of writing the check becomes something meaningful. It's not life-changing, but being present for writing a check is the essence of being present for our own life, isn't it? And we could go on and on with the example. You know, I, uh, next week I have, a, I have to make a doctor's appointment, so in this moment I do, but I'm not distracted by my health or what might happen there. It's just, this is my life. This is what's occurring in this moment, and so it's practical. The Buddha didn't awaken and then just uh, sit under a pipal tree and wait for the world to unfold. Every day he did his job, which was to teach the Dhamma. Every day he got up off his cushion, walked into town with his bowl and his ratty robes, begging for food. Why did he do it? Because that's what he did. I mean, sometimes his, his, his attendants, Ananda, would, would, would do that for him, but he lived a life of, of, a, of, a, of a very ordinary human being but mindfully engaged, meaningfully engaged in each and every moment of his life. And that's what made it an extraordinary life. And that's what makes our lives extraordinary. And so we're not indifferent to anything in our life. It's just the opposite. But as we start developing the Dhamma, it can seem like that. And even in a way that the, the, the Buddha taught a very, a very spare Dhamma. It doesn't allow for anything else except Dhamma itself within it. And so that can, that can lead to a certain amount of grasping within the Dharma practice. What am I doing? It doesn't seem to be anything here until we actually have that Ehephasiko moment, which is what you're describing, Meg. So uh, thank you for bringing that up. It's such an important point. David, how are you? Good, John. And just to piggyback on Meg's concerns, I think Tim expressed it before class, that it provides a clarity 
a practical clarity so you can tackle those problems that come up every day in business and in family mm -hmm. life that you don't have the clutter of the worry of the future or regret of the past. Mm -hmm. So there's a clarity, you know, a, a focus that it provides and yep. that's certainly just a byproduct, but it's a practical byproduct. Utterly. In, in all areas of our lives, we will will be better, not in the point of, well, now I can make more money because I'm pre Because every, each and every moment of our life will be meaningful, including commerce. You know, I was talking to someone. Every now and then I use this term, conscious commerce, when we're actually bringing the Dhamma into whatever areas of our lives are engaged with money. Money has this, has this awful connotation, especially in the new agey types, that there's something bad about money. Well, there can't, how could there be? Money is it's just, it's a completely inanimate object, except when we put ourselves into it, when we attach ourselves to it. Then it becomes something that with, with the potential to harm others and harm ourselves. By what? By conditioned thinking and becoming obsessed with it like we can do with anything else. And it's another great example. Thank you, David. Hello, Ron. John? Yeah, it, and and, and um, money is... is a great example of, of how uh, it's one of the primary things that pulls us out of the present. Yeah. <clears throat> Anytime we have to deal with, we, we have to deal with our, our emotional reaction to too much. Yep. I want more of it, or my God, this is too much. Uh, and, um, and, and a lot of what is being taught out there as, you know, as, as this is what you should do has to do with, you know, you should get more money. You, know, yeah. you should have those, you know, that, that, that desire and, and those fears, you should, you should work on that. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, what, that's what's really going to turn your life around. And inevitably it doesn't. Yeah, many people believe that. Even, even again, so many so-called spiritual people also are still, they never get past the idea that if I can just get the biggest pile, then I'll be okay. And even people say, look at their Dhamma practice that, yeah, this sounds really good, but I want to get to a certain place in my life mm -hmm. where I don't have to worry yeah. about other things. Yeah. Then I can yeah, meditate. Then and I can, I can, yeah. and you, again, you never get there. You never get there. It's really, uh, no matter what, point in our life this is really to me what the Bahia Sutta really means that when, no matter what point in our life we come to the Dhamma that's the point that we should practice it because there's the opportunity what better opportunity is there thank you Ron hello Julia hello I'm John um, I really have nothing to add but uh, thank you very much for the teaching thank you here hello Michael I'm a little surprised at that I am too <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say are you okay no, no, no. No. You're feeling okay, Julia. <laughs> All right, fine, I'll speak now. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I, 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 um, I think uh, staying in the present moment uh, obviously is something that we sh strive to do, or shouldn't be so much striving. It's something that we have to understand what it entails. Yes. So whole idea of past and future and time comes into comes to mind with this obviously because we tend to fabricate on the past and the future because we're not present 
But when we're fabricating on the past and the future, the past and or future is we're fabricating in the present moment. Yeah. We are fabricating in the present moment. Yep. So, obviously the future hasn't come yet, or and the past is far behind us. So, that's the recognition I get from that, the present moment, is that yeah. we're actually creating scenarios, whether they be in the future, whether they be in the past, and why. They're just an illusion. They're just like, there's nothing to them until they actually occur. So why are we just creating illusions that we're entangling ourselves with and taking away from uh, you know, the process of emptying ourselves? Yep. The process of emptying ourselves is staying in the present moment and not being you know, uh, taken part of, of an illusion that either occurred some time ago or it's happening, will be happening perhaps in the future. Yeah. So that's what. Well said. You, you asked a rhetorical question that I'm going to answer. Why? Why do we do that? Because of eye-making. We fabricate this moment because in this moment, me as a human being is not enough. I need to be more than a six-property person. Even though I know, and every human being actually does know this at their root, because they must, they're human beings, every human being knows they can't be any more than a six-property person, yet we spend lifetime after lifetime trying to be so. That's, that's mindlessness, isn't it? And the Buddha recognized and it said the only way to stop that is to be mindful of your life as it occurs. Because it's, it's, it's the direct uh, counter to not being here for my life as my life occurs, to be here. And it, again, it, sounds, it almost sounds too simple to say, but that's the essence of wise restraint. That's what we do. We put our, ourselves in our own lives. And we keep ourselves here. How? By the breath, by the one thing we have in common, by jhana, by a well-concentrated mind. How does that work? It holds in mind the framework of the Dhamma, and that allows us to be present for life as life occurs. And you described it beautifully. Thank you, Michael. Hello, Tim. Hello. Well, like Michael said, when I, when I read this sutta, not this sutta, this chapter, it struck me that it's about guarding that mindfulness, that yeah. quality of mind. Yep. Good the emphasis on guarding, and, and going back to what I was talking about on Saturday, I think it makes more sense now. To heed is an actionable word of actionably, actively guarding the quality of the mind yeah. in the present moment. Because if we don't, then what Michael described going to happen. Yeah. Right? Those, those, and, and to what Michael was saying when I was reading this, I started thinking about the line that you mentioned, free of greed and aversion, free of gaining and losing. Yeah. Well, that sounds an awful lot like the eight worldly conditions, right? The, the pleasure and pain. Yeah. The fame and insignificance, the gain and loss. And the praise and blame. If I'm, I think that's the look of the Padi Sutta. Those are the things that the ego. Th those are those are all the elements of I making of <laughs> them, right? Yeah. And so, when I read this this chapter, I just imagined myself like a sentinel, 
when I spoke earlier before class about observing, observing my, my quality of mind in the present moment. And then going back to the breath, resetting if I'm reacting in a different way. And that's what I was talking about, the, the exhausting nature of it, because yeah. it happens quite often yeah. sometimes. But, but often enough times if we're in a good setting, right, um, or anywhere, and we're able to remain present, it's not so hard, you know, because you're there, you're in the present. Yep. It's, that, it's those moments of times where those eight worldly conditions feed that ego. And to Michael's point, past and future, we're, we're lost. So yeah. this, this little chapter, this little chapter <coughs> um, has a lot packed into it, but I think the emphasis is on that protection of the quality of mind. That's what I got from it. Yeah. No, you, you, you got exactly what it was. So a gold star and a nice shirt. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Hello, Brent. Hey, good to be here. Um, thanks for your teaching. Pleasure. See you, everybody. Um, I like your, what you were saying about leaving something on the table, um, or I guess not taking everything off the table, rather. Um, but I guess that was kind of like uh, Michael was saying, or that. That, how does that relate? I was just going to ask you maybe for like, like a, an example of that, but then kind of listening to, you know, like, I guess not attaching yourself, not looking into the future, you know, that's, that's you, you gave some examples of that, but I, you know. Um, yeah, it would be any, any type of grasping after mm -hmm. or clinging to that, that imagined need. Is, is an example of that, of, of, of not, leaving, not leaving something on the table for others. Right, 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 right. You know, and again, it, it goes back right to the caveman mentality that I gotta have the most coconuts in the, in the biggest cave. Mm -hmm. You know, makes me the better, the better caveman. And again, to, to continue with that silly metaphor, okay, I'm, I'm the best caveman there is. That's not such a great distinction, is it? Because what you're saying is you're, you might be the best, but you're also just like everyone else. So where's the distinction? Why do we strive for that kind of um, uh, collective superiority, meaning I want to be part of this whole thing, but I need to be better than it too. That's just, that, that creates an incredible tension in your mind, doesn't it? Because you're always trying to relate at the same time you're always trying to be better. How can you, but we live our lives like that. We live our lives as individuals. As, as organizations, as religions, as countries. We all do that same thing, all rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. The Buddha said, let go of that. Let go of that in incredible need to establish your own uniqueness, which is just eye-making, and be a unique human being. We can't be anything else. But another thing that has been lost over the 2600 years is this idea of a, of a cosmic universal mind, something the Buddha never taught, that is common in most religions. And that, is, that creates an incredible tension in people's minds, doesn't it? Because we're not that way. We are individuals with individual minds and individual lives. The collectivism comes in understanding the ignorance that keeps us separated in, in, the, in the unreality of our lives rather than recognizing the sameness of Four Noble Truths. Because that's what we're all living. Every human being has a choice. We either live in that awakened state or moving towards it, or we stay embroiled in the mara of our own ignorance. And so here we go. How do we change it? 
How do we go from that? We become willing to restrain our minds. How do we do that? Through an eightfold path. And it's just that way. Thank you. Is there a danger in practicing the eightfold path but not accepting the third noble truth? Uh, wow, what a what a. There's a there's a danger in the in so far as you cannot develop it to its culmination, and to me that's the biggest danger of all. You know, to me the the biggest harm that could befall me right now is to lose a dharma, and not be able to get it back. And John, to what David said though, if if the the eightfold path has those those factors, the virtuous path, we all know that. So if we're not practicing the dharma, and you know, we one a person tries to do something that is quote unquote a good deed. You know, that's still that's still line making because that's I guess that person would have to ask themselves, am I doing this for my own benefit? You know, to feel good about myself. Because if that's the case, well, yes, there may be a good result. It's still it's still harmful to that person because yes, yes, they're yes. doing it for their own ego. Yes. It, altruism without without right. wisdom, meaning un, knowledge of self is wisdom, is often hurtful and dangerous to yourself and to others. The, the Crusades or modern jihads are a good right. example, an extreme example, but a good example of that type of thinking. Um, while you were talking, I was talking. I was thinking about my mother. My mother was the most wonderful person that ever lived. She really was. She she never harmed another soul, and she was as kind and compassionate as you could be. But she did it all out of an ideology. As she got to the end of her life, the, the conflict that she carried within her her whole life because of that, because of her, her belief that she must be a good person, even though she was, literally tore at her till the day she died, even though the last 10 years, I don't get into that. But it literally did it, and I see that in other people. I saw it in my dad, too. And most of us, that you've heard me say that this, this underlying problem of human self-loathing is the common human condition. And most of us start conditioning ourselves towards that when we were very little, very, very young, and we acted out of frustration or anger. I'm talking three, four, five years old, and we hurt someone that we cared deeply for and didn't understand how we could do it, but we understood that a harm was done. And that created a tension and a reaction to our minds that conditions the human mind. Again, I'm going to get called on this until the day we die. Because we can never reconcile it. Think of this... And I, I can, I, mean, I guess I'm pretty in touch with it. That you've harmed someone inadvertently. You don't know that you're not going to do it again. How else are you going to develop that understanding unless you can practice wise restraint? And nobody teaches us that. No human being has ever taught wise restraint, except one that I know of. I mean, I, you know, again, I'm, I make an absolute statement with the qualification that. I'm, I don't think I know everything there is in the world, so maybe there was someone else. But I came across this. And this is the only teaching that allowed me to get past that self-loathing that I was carrying through to every spiritual discipline, every Buddhist lineage I became a part of, taking my vows and disavowing my vows was all part of that self-loathing. I didn't realize it. it was all part of having to fix a broken self that I didn't realize wasn't broken at all and could never be broken. How can you break a six-property person? You can't. can't be done. Yeah. You can affect and, it. And those things we learn at the, at the earliest age are the deepest things, and they are the last things that will come up. 
in, yeah. in our our way to to awakening. I, don't know. I couldn't figure out why the hell I was so afraid of myself. I didn't. I, I mean, it, 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 I couldn't. I, nobody can understand that. Afraid of your own actions. You know, because even we have words like afraid of your own shadow. Because of the way that we think about ourselves in relation to the world and the things that we've done that have harmed ourselves or others. That's called conditioned thinking. How do we get through it? How do we get through that whole mess when you think about it? You certainly can't get, get through it through looking at it in an analytical way. You simply have to recognize that all is rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. I simply did not know how to live in the world, and now I do. And now I can live without conflict in my own mind. Well, don't blame you when you're a child. When you're a four-year-old child, a five or six, seven, eight-year-old child, you're not. You don't have the development to make those decisions. And so, to blame yourself for something that one has done as a child is counterintuitive. Oh, and that's that may be a, that may be a pad over analytical. However, when because that goes back to these worldly conditions, you know, yep. how that ego feeds off of these things. And so it's easier for the ego to repress and suppress those conditioned thoughts and feelings, yep. which is often why as people get older, they come up. Yeah, oh, you, you can't avoid it. It's and we do it because it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't acknowledge my greatness. I don't, you know, there's something, I, I, I've made a bad, a bad decision or a bad action. And so that's more fodder for self-loathing, isn't it? Rather than... This simple, and again, it avoids all the other nonsense. We get right through the mess and say, wait a minute. I'm acting this way, I'm thinking this way, I'm feeling this way because I don't know something. And it's a very knowable subject. It's, it's broken down as four noble truths, but they're utterly simple. The Eightfold Path is utterly simple. Why do we have such a hard time doing something that is this simple, this beneficial? Because of conditioned thinking, because of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. The mind is too distracted. The mind yeah. is too distracted to let it occur. And the, the, so Siddhartha G realized that and said, wait a minute, first thing we've got to do is find a way to concentrate our mind so that we can see this, and then we need the framework of the other seven factors to actually see it. And it, as we can all say, it works wonderfully well. So, um, any, anybody else have anything they'd like to add? Or Okay, we'll finish with meta as we always do. Um, we're going to continue with the Dhammapada, uh, mostly through the rest of this year. Uh, the Thursday uh, class, we're going through uh, a structured study of jhana, and right now we're going through the Satipatthana Sutta in a very methodical way uh, that's working out uh, pretty remarkably. And that led to what we're going to do on our retreat, which, which will be that. We focused on the Satipatthana Sutta with seven sessions, uh, breaking it down uh, into really the... Uh, I think, again, I use the word again, a remarkable teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness. And that retreat is October 1st to 3rd, online and, and here uh, in Frenchtown as well. So, all right, we'll finish with Metta as we always do. The Buddha's words on Metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta, um, as preserved uh, and translated by the Amaravati Monastery in, in London, England. The Buddha's words. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, 
not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing and gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Peace. Thank you, John. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Cliff. See you all soon. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.